Welcome to American Narratives. I'm Miriam Pina. And I'm Joe Fraudra. We have an interesting story today. Our guest was born in Cuba and will share his incredible journey to America and his career progression in corporate America. Ruben Esquivel is the Vice President for Community and Corporate Relations of UT Southwestern Medical Center since 1995. He began his career as an assembler with AVO International. While working, he attended college at night to earn a degree in electrical engineering from the New Jersey Institute of Technology. His work at AVO culminated in being named president and CEO of the company in 1985 and vice chairman in 1994. Ruben has served as chairman of the board of managers of the Dallas County Hospital District, Atmos Energy Corporation, and currently serves on several industry boards. In 2017, the Ruben E. Esquivel Scholarship was established by the DCCD Foundation Board in honor of his 26 years of service on the board. Ruben, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you, Ruben. Well, we're just honored to have you here in the studio, and, and we've heard so much great stuff about you. Uh, let's start with you, um, kind of on a personal level. We've already kind of tipped our hat. You're originally from Cuba. Give us that story. Uh, uh, kind of tell us about those kind of first years in Cuba. What was that like, and what brought you to the United States? That uh, part of my narrative uh, covers the first 18 years of my life. As you said, I, I was born in Cuba. I was born in Havana. Uh, I uh, uh, lived in the heart of Havana. We lived in an apartment building, and um, my mother was a seamstress. My father worked uh, at a grocery store that his brother owned a couple of blocks from, from our, our building. Uh, growing up, um, the uh, first thing I recall was starting school, and how hard my mother tried to find a, a school that she felt would be a, a, a good start. Uh, she was a strong believer in a good education. So she discovered that there was a, a, a small uh, school about three blocks away that was sponsored by the, uh, the Methodist Church. Uh, and, uh, and the school offered uh, English language uh, classes from the very beginning. So when I enrolled in kindergarten at that school, uh, in the morning we would go and uh, everything was presented in Spanish and then I would go back in the afternoon after going home for lunch and then everything was presented in English. And that was all the way through from kindergarten through sixth grade and then going into a business school that was offered for those that had finished the sixth grade. So. She was very smart and, 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 and loved us to the point, my, my younger sister and I, that uh, as a seamstress, she did what it took to make the necessary money to pay the reasonable tuition that the school was charged. So as I'm growing up, uh, you know, things happen. My father and mother divorced. So for a period of time, my uh, mother was a, a, single, a single mother uh, raising both of us. I do recall that uh, uh, life would be one where if I got a, a, a educated properly, I could find a job, get married, have family, and had no inkling that uh, we would ever leave or at that point wanted to leave the country of our birth. Um, but again, things happen. And... Uh, uh, there was a point in time where 
We had been under a dictatorship, Batista. I still remember the morning I woke up when he had taken over power from an elected president and declared himself president. So uh, it was not uh, welcomed and started hearing that a, a young lawyer by the name of Fidel Castro uh, didn't like it either, and it, but he was going to do something about it. So uh, there were... Uh, there was uh, a landing of his forces and running into a mountainous area where from Havana we would hear he had survived the, the landing and was now waging a guerrilla warfare. So we, by then my mother had remarried uh, and uh, we were really rooting for a change. And the change came on January 1, 1959. That morning, we woke up to the news again, in this case, that Batista had fled the country and that Fidel and his troops were marching through the island towards Havana. And, of course, we were there welcoming him with open arms and very glad that we would now uh, live in a, uh, in a democracy with constitutional government and all the things that uh, Batista had taken away Castro was going to bring back. So again, uh, I'm 15 years old. I'm thinking, what a wonderful place to grow up, work, raise a family, get married, raise a family. But then again, things change. Things happen. And what happened was a change that we could notice, even though we were still being promised a lot of good things to come from the new government, clearly that was not going to the, the the case and uh, we realized that uh, we were going into a different kind of di dictatorship and uh, at the point where we uh, had hoped that perhaps the uh, Bay of Pigs would be a trigger for that change just like Castro uh, uh, defeated Batista uh, uh, other Cubans could could come and defeat Castro. That didn't happen, and so that was a sign that things would never change, that uh, power would be consolidated. So my mother and my stepfather said, we, we are not going to live in a communist country if we can avoid that. And uh, they uh, said, let's find ways in which we can uh, leave the country. And again, through the school, that school I had been attending uh, uh, and which I was about to graduate from the business school uh, in a couple of years, they were able to, uh, the, the pastor of the church was able to alert us of certain flights, charter flights that were leaving the country. Because at that time, once you made a decision to leave, you couldn't just simply say, go to the U.S. consulate, apply for a visa, book a flight on American Airlines. No, none of that was available. But what was available were these charter flights. Years later, here in Dallas is where I learned that those flights were called the Peter Pan or Pedro Pan flights because they were primarily reserved for Cuban children, even without their parents going with them, but with the promise that when they arrived in the U.S. or a third country, that there would be individuals or organizations that would care, receive those children and care for them. So after uh, my wife and I became parents, we realized the, 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 the expression of love 
our parents had to say, you get on that flight when it becomes available, and we will try to follow as soon as possible. So we had the opportunity because there were two seats available in one of those charter flights, not to the U.S., but to Kingston, Jamaica. And our, went to the airport with our parents, one suitcase each, my sister one, I had one. We said goodbye. They searched our suitcases to make sure that we only had clothing in there. We were not allowed to take money or anything else valuable. And, uh, and that was in October of 1961. We said goodbye to our parents, got on that flight. It took off, and we left with this hope that we would see them over again. So that, that, that gets me to that point of... Um, uh, having learned uh, several lessons, actually, uh, as as we boarded that flight, one lesson I learned was what are the important things in life? They we cannot take anything other than some clothing with us. But look what we're taking! All of the things we learned in school, all of the lessons that my mother gave us, we had them. We had them in our minds. Those, when they searched us, they couldn't find those. I guess we smuggled the, the most valuable thing that we had at that point. And uh, just, um, it, it, uh, it, 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 it just made it so clear to me that education is extremely important. Nobody can take what you learned from you. Second thing we learned is when we landed in Jamaica, where we didn't know anyone, there were individuals and organizations there that uh, helped us. They welcomed us. They gave us, took us to a place where we could sleep. They gave us food. The next morning, they took us to the U.S. consulate to start the paperwork to apply for a visa so we could come to the U.S., which was our goal to come to the U.S. And for 17 days, they kept helping us and, and providing for us. And when we got our visas, they got us uh, airline tickets to fly to Miami, where another agency and another set of people were waiting for us to help us resettle in the U.S. So that's how uh, I go from being born in, in a tropical island and ending up in uh, in the U.S. in a short 18 years. Wow. You know, that is a front row seat to history. Yes, it is. It is. I, you know, it's we hear about this stuff as, as kind of an ethereal thing or an intellectual set of dates and happenings, but for you to be kind of front row center and so directly and personally impacted by those kind of macro macro political events is pretty amazing. So thank you for sharing that. And and what it showed, obviously, is that it was a, at least you saw at that point, the United States is a bastion of freedom, an escape. Uh, probably you didn't want to leave your home. Who would? But uh, but what? But it was there for you, and and not only there as a concept, but in very much reality. There as was. a matter of fact, I think the in our minds, this was going to be a short term trip. Interesting. That uh, when we arrived, when we left. And when we arrived, and for a number of years, it is just 
know, next Christmas back in Havana. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Well, yeah, now it would be, uh, I guess you could go back, but that would be a little bit... Uh, a little bit delayed, to say the least. We've done that, but that's another story. <laughs> with, yeah. with our entire family, by the way. That would have been great. That would have been a lot of fun, I'm sure. That would well, yeah. I, so thank you for uh, the personal stories. Just we could, we could probably spend another three hours just talking about <laughs> Absolutely. that. Absolutely. No, Ruben, you know, one of the things that you, you just mentioned, which I noted, is you smuggled the most valuable thing. And what a great way to put into perspective for so many of us and the audience listening of, we forget about the small stuff so many times. We're so running the day-to-day things that we need to be reminded about valuing those things that, that you can't take away from you. You're, you're, anyone can take away from you, right? So you come to the U.S., you're 18 years old um, with your younger sister. What was it like integrating? Any Anything interesting or challenging? Well, I mentioned that when I went to school in Havana, we uh, were immersed in English uh, from kindergarten uh, throughout. So that was helpful, except uh, I forgot that there are different accents in throughout the U.S. So uh, in Jamaica, for example, English-speaking country, right? Yep. I had a hard time understanding <laughs> uh, uh, English in Jamaica. And, and, you know, uh, to be fair, they had a terrible time understanding my English <laughs> as well. So uh, we only were in Miami for about uh, two or three weeks, and most of our contacts were, as I said, with the refugee agencies there. And then uh, they helped us connect with a, f- a family that was living in New Jersey, Elizabeth, New Jersey, that uh, they had left Cuba about a year earlier, and we knew them. Our families knew each other, and when they uh, contacted the family in New Jersey about Ruben, Ruben uh, Gisela, mm-hmm. uh, uh, looking for a foster home, basically for her, I was uh, 18 years old, but she needed to be with a guardian mm-hmm. or in a foster home. When they heard we were there, they readily said, bring them over, send them over. They can live with us until their parents come. So we end up in New Jersey, and then, again, trying to make sure my English was understood and I could understand, and that's another uh, uh, opportunity to, to, to acclimate uh, language-wise. Uh, and then, of course, all the customs are different, uh, uh, you know, I said I went to business school in Cuba. I was also doing the equivalent of a high school, which was called bachillerato there. So that allowed you to enroll in the university. Then I learned here, it's, you know, you have to pass the SAT and you have to uh, um, you know, show your grades. Uh, and I had to overcome all of that. I mean, the SAT, fortunately, the, I didn't do very well in, on the English section. But the math compensated. So I was able to enroll in the New Jersey Institute of Technology. At that time, it was called the Newark College of Engineering. I must say, I went to work right away. I, I was not enrolling in school right away. I had to make a living. Our family friends were, were you know, gave us food, shelter, and a roof, and very, very generous, again, uh, helping us. Uh, 
with, with our starting uh, starting our lives here. And uh, uh, so I went to work. I found a job on this small company that manufactured electrical testing equipment. And I was on the assembly line and figured, well, I kind of like what I'm doing. I better find out how this works. And so I learned about this, this university that had an evening program because I had to work days, make a living, and then pursue my education. I knew that if I did not go beyond the high school, I would be on that assembly line for a long time to come. So I did enroll in the university at evening program. It took me nine years to get my electrical engineering degree. You know, maybe for an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old by then when I enrolled to think that far ahead is, is strange. But in my case, what uh, motivated me was in nine years or nine years from now, I either have a degree and an opportunity to advance myself if I enroll or if I don't enroll nine years from now, I don't have anything. So that prompted me to start. And you know, I had challenges uh, in, 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 in school with some of the subjects. Uh, you know, I would read these poems for English 101, and the professor would say, so interpret that. I would say, well, it says the cat ate the, ate the canary. <laughs> <laughs> Took and then I learned, no, no, there's a lot more meaning behind that. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's almost unfair. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So, uh, and I guess maybe that also indicates why why I gravitated towards engineering because I mean my <laughs> my way of thinking is very uh, straightforward <laughs> yes. and uh, no ambiguities there. Not a lot of metaphor and analogy <laughs> no, going no, on. No. So that's well, that's uh, first of all uh, nine years. Even then, you knew it would be nine years, and you're like, well, what's the alternative, right? So that's that's pretty much defaulted to I'll, I'll stick it in, stick it out, and. It's amazing because it, I'm sure at 18, 19, nine years felt like a lifetime. <laughs> but to have the fortitude and the stamina to actually get after it. I mean, looking back, eh, it's just nine years. It's easy for us to say, right? A little yeah. bit it's more. nothing now. Nothing now. It's like I forget, you know, which <laughs> decade I'm in half the time. Yeah, but, but at the time, it showed some real foresight and stamina, honestly. And then, of course, working during the day and going at night is, is, a, is a grind. It's a nine-year grind. Walk us through your career journey then post that. You got your education. What was your first kind of post-education job? And kind of walk us through your career, Cliff Notes version of your career thus far. Well, I'll break it down in, in two segments. First, uh, my first 35 years, starting at age 18 with the company that I went to work for uh, when I first arrived. And then 25 years following that, in the current role that I've had at UT Southwestern. So the company I went to work for, as I said, was a small company, but it was growing and it uh, opened up opportunities for promotion. Uh, as those nine years were going by where I was getting a formal education, I also had opportunities to uh, apply for and earn uh, positions of greater responsibility. For example, from the assembly line, mm -hmm. there was an opportunity to become a quality control inspector. So in other words, I would then be checking the work that the assemblers were doing uh, for quality assurance. So I applied, I got that. And then there was uh, an opportunity to 
become an uh, inventory control uh, clerk. And it was higher pay, and I applied for that, and I got that opportunity. Uh, and then there was an opportunity to become an assistant buyer, a purchasing department, and I applied for that, and I got that opportunity. And then from that, I became a, a, a purchasing agent or a buyer. And then from there, I became a, an accounting clerk as well. So I found, and, and now even with hindsight, I recognize that there is an advantage sometimes to being with a small organization and a small company where you have these opportunities come along and Possibly that's the reason I stuck with the same organization for 35 years because uh, the, the, you know, you, you're never that far removed from the next level with lots of layers in, into management or within management. And uh, uh, as I said, purchasing, accounting clerk, bookkeeper, controller, uh, chief financial officer eventually. Yeah. So th- I, I reached those levels. Yeah. You know, you mentioned opportunities. Did you have any mentors along the way? Oh, and second question also is, what made you want to keep going and applying for that next big role within that company? Uh, I think everyone in the organization was a mentor in a different way. I think the what I saw from the uh, those that were doing... Uh, quality assurance and inventory control, I liked. I mean, they were making sure that uh, the product was well designed and, and, and would work when the uh, customers received that product. So I found that uh, example. I mean, they, they were not formal mentors, but I guess informal mentors to me. And the same thing with uh, those involved in, in the other functions that I strive to, to, uh, to, to apply for and achieve. And, and then ultimately, the, uh, the president of the company, I guess, found out about uh, what I was doing and really, uh, uh, must say, uh, was very uh, helpful as well in making sure that I finished my degree and uh, started to reimburse me as I finished every semester with the tuition I had been paying. Uh, And nine years is a long time, so I must interject here that in that period of time, I got married. My wife, (laughs) Alina. That's a little thing. Yes. (laughs) It it was too long to wait, and actually Alina uh, was my girlfriend in Cuba and Havana. And so she left under the same circumstances I described. She left as a 15-year-old without her parents in one of those Peter Pan flights to Kingston, Jamaica. And the only difference is when she got to Miami, she had some family there that she went, uncles that she went to stay with until her parents were able to to come. So uh, like her parents... My parents were able to come eventually, six months later. So we started our lives all over again, uh, six months after, as a family, six months after uh, I, ar- I arrived in, in New Jersey. Uh, so uh, I uh, found myself uh, 
getting married, having children, two children, David and Ileana. And uh, so it was, uh, it was uh, a period of time, those 12 years in New Jersey, where, where my career established a, uh, I was going to say a foundation. Really, the foundation was my first 18 years. That was my foundation. This is where the uh, scaffolding took place for my future career, where all these opportunities came along and I was able to, to succeed. And again, uh, as you ask, mentors uh, were more by example, by uh, providing support, as I said, than formal mentorship. So you're, you find yourself married, couple of children, electrical engineering degree, 30 years old. And then the next phase happened, it sounded like. They, you came south, not to Miami, but to Texas. That is right. And again, that was the, uh, uh, it came about because of the growth of the company. We had run out of uh, space to expand in, in New Jersey and the site where we were. And the idea at, the point, at that point was, where do we go? And it was a, then a good opportunity to look not only uh, within New Jersey, but throughout the country. The company did uh, a great deal of exporting of the products. And so uh, it was important to be close not only to our domestic markets, uh, but also to our international markets. And we were doing business uh, in South America, in Europe, Asia, and Dallas then became a, a target for consideration for relocation because centrally located, equidistant between the East Coast and the West Coast, but also Europe, uh, Asia, and, and South America. It was as, was, as I described it then, the crossroads of the world. DFW International Airport was about to open, so we knew we had ways of getting not only our goods and services out, but our people to wherever they needed to travel, and uh, made the decision to come to Dallas. And in those days, it was not, uh, uh, oh, by the way, we were publicly traded at that point, so it was one of the first publicly traded companies that relocated their headquarters to Dallas back in 1973. And, uh, and, and, and so we, we made the move. We offered all the employees the opportunity to, to relocate with the company to Dallas. So that second phase of my career with AVO starts then here in Dallas after that relocation. I, I now have the scaffolding, the, the, the foundation from my education, then the scaffolding from how I started uh, to, to advance in my career uh, first career, and now uh, moving into uh, top management of the company. Yeah, and what a story to come from on the line, uh, kind of enculturating yourself not only in a new company, but in a new culture and a new country, to moving into more senior leadership, to actually ultimately, ultimately leading the company. That's that's an amazing story. Tell, tell Give us kind of cliff notes of how did that happen and, you know, and kind of what was your swan song? Like what, what were the career steps that, that you took once you got here to Texas and what did that look like? I think what the move to Texas did on a personal basis, 
it, it allowed me the opportunity to be more active in the community. In New Jersey, while going to school, yeah. young married with young children, uh, that, that was my focus. Uh, when we come to Texas, then not only it's my desire to be active in the community because I now have this sense of gratitude that I have to express in some way that I have been the beneficiary of people, institutions, organizations, helping uh, our family, helping so many others that I saw that we had done nothing to merit that, that now it, it, it was an obligation to pay back, to pay forward, to do something for others. And Dallas gave us that opportunity. From the moment we arrived, we were invited to be active with community organizations, uh, starting with Chambers of Commerce, simply because we had made a, a decision to relocate a, a corporate headquarters here. The Chambers here wanted us to travel to other communities in the, in the country and talk to their management to say, here's our experience. We we were able to make a great transition. These are the reasons we go into Dallas and everything we expected uh, being in Dallas, having a business in Dallas is, mm -hmm. is happening. And so beyond the chamber, which again, I believe in economic development, I said, first of all, education, then economic development, because that also, it gives job opportunities for everyone. Then uh, is uh, serving others in, uh, human service organizations. So I became active with the YMCA of Metropolitan Dallas, love the work they do with their branches, and each branch has their own uh, um, board, advisory board, that focuses on the needs of the area they serve. So it's not a top-down uh, set of, uh, of, of, of activities that, that each branch has to do. No, if they're if their focus is seniors, if their focus is daycare, if their focus is whatever it is, they, they can do it locally. So I like that. And then eventually, I oh, I, I, education. I, I wanted to serve on the school board in, in DeSoto where, where we moved and learned that to do that, I had to be elected. And I'm not a political person uh, at all, I, uh, you know, but they said, that's the only way you're gonna, you have to run. And if you're elected, then you're going to be on the school board and be able to, to do something for, for our kids there. And, uh, and so I said, all right, I, I will put my name on the ballot, and that's it. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, going around door to door, shaking hands, all the things that I know you have to do. But I said, I'll just put my name out. Well, lo and behold, I get elected. <laughs> <laughs> that, that we don't want to, some people out there have not been elected and worked really hard that, that's I know, almost defeating I know. I'm telling you <laughs> I, I just it, it was you know again another reason to be grateful that sure. this community where maybe my wife and I are the only Latinos in the community uh, uh, they picked me and then not only that when, when I served my first three year term and my next three year terms each year, the board elects the president. I was elected by the board wow. every year, except the first year, to be president of the school board in the Soto, Texas. Just uh, it's that's uh, amazing. Uh, yes, yes. So, so I am now uh, uh, 
doing things that I'd love to do. This is, this is doing what I wanted to do to express my gratitude, service on the school board. Then healthcare also is another opportunity. I didn't have to run to serve on the Parkland Hospital Board. It is an appointed board. The county commissioners appoint the members of the board of, uh, of, of Parkland. And I re- initially, when I was approached to serve on the Parkland board, I had hesitation because I didn't, I didn't feel I was bringing anything to, to the board. I had no health medical experience whatsoever, and I was still uh, on my last year of my second term on the school board. But the county commissioner that invited me to consider serving on the Parkland board insisted and said, number one, it's going to take about a year or more for you to learn what's going on. And unless you're running for re-election again to a third term on the school board, you may want to use that year to catch up on on what you need to. And number two, uh, we're, we're not asking you because of your health or medical experience. We, we have other board members that bring that. What you bring is, is an experience on uh, your years uh, as an immigrant as well as your years uh, involved with a business and running a business, and, and that's what we need. For the county, this is a very significant uh, institution. So on that basis, I said, yes, I'm glad I did. I, it opened my eyes serving on the board of Parkland to the number one, the need that our county has for health medical care. And then number two, for the way that the patients at Parkland and, 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 and the treatment they're able to receive and the care they're able to receive uh, because of the partnership with UT Southwestern, as I learned, is that uh, they are, they are being, uh, their care is overseen by doctors that have patients that can go anywhere in the world they want to for their care, and then they choose the doc- those doctors. But these are the same doctors that are uh, training the next generation of physicians that are overseeing the care of the Parkland patients that don't, don't have choice. That is their choice. to go. And what a great public hospital Parkland is. Oh, it's a beautiful facility, too. It's very beautiful. It's a really sophisticated operation. So you know what's interesting, and, and this is why I find this compelling. We talk about career, and you ended up defaulting to service, right? Instead of talking about all these big positions. By the way, he's been in very senior leadership roles and executive roles in significant companies. But, but where you defaulted to, what, what came from your heart, was the service in these board positions uh, in the community. Yeah. I can tell that that's really, tell me if I'm wrong, that's really what motivates you and brings meaning to your life. Is that accurate? Absolutely right. And that was a transition point when I came to Dallas and started to uh, be involved in community service while still running the organization. Sure. So when we sold the business and eventually uh, ran it for a period of years after selling it, it was time to move on. And moving on is... Uh, as a younger, is still young at that point, was what do I do next? And the, uh, the opportunity to then continue that part of the community service representing UT Southwestern, when that came along, it was just absolutely um, perfect. Maybe it's not the specific goal I had in mind, but when it, when, when it came, it was just like a revelation that Ruben, this is this is for you. This is you've got to do this, 
And for the last 25 years, I have been able to, uh, as you said, John, give back uh, to, uh, to, to that passion that was building in to, to uh, demonstrate gratitude in a tangible way. Yeah, it, it's rare that I see CEOs move into that kind of community-focused role, uh, not right or wrong. I just think it's amazing, right, that that people, that you went with your passion, your interest, your, your fabric, and out of an attitude of gratitude, which is beautiful. Thank you for sharing. It's very inspirational. It's very inspirational. It says a lot, a lot about you as an individual, your character, and, and the love and passion that you have for the community and give back. Um, Ruben, you know, as as we wrap up, what would be some key lessons or learnings in addition to what you've already shared that you'd like to share with the audience? I may repeat myself. That's okay. In <laughs> that regard, because I have to go back to education. My mother, if if there was a prime mentor in my life, obviously it was my mother. Uh, not only because she insisted; she only had a sixth grade education, by the way. So she, but she knew that that was uh, maybe because she had, didn't have the opportunity to go beyond that level. She wanted for her children to go beyond that level. And so that's why she sacrificed and put us in a school that she knew. I mean, at that time, it wasn't because of English was so critical while living in Cuba. At that time, she didn't know we would become a very important part of, of our lives. But, you know, she had that vision and so she was my first mentor. So education, as I said before, uh, no one can take that away from you. And it, education and learning, learning is something that we can continue to do for the rest of our lives. I think if we stop learning, then we stop growing. And that is, uh, uh, to me, a, a great basis. The other one, and I think it comes to me more from my, my faith beliefs, and, and that's where gratitude comes in, that so many times we don't realize what others are doing for us. And we assume, uh, well, I earned that or I did that. Well, I can say that about my getting a college degree, my getting my first job. I did that. No, there were other factors at play, individuals, organizations that make those things happen. And so... Uh, I, I would say uh, uh, be aware of, of, of what you have and don't uh, um, assume that it's all because of you. It is because of others that have helped you along. You have to do your part, but uh, it's, it's others. And then uh, uh, use that as your motivation to help others as well. And it doesn't matter if you never do it directly. Many of the, the, the organizations we can support or other individuals we can support can have a multiplier effect. So we're not just uh, then el helping those immediately uh, in our circle, but by uh, supporting whatever organization you want to support, you can then uh, multiply and you can also extend their reach, your reach, to others. That's uh, it's very inspirational. I love it. That is really terrific. Thank you so much. Um, this has been an interesting 
uh, and very meaningful interview. So thank you so it much. It really Ruben. has been. And uh, with that, we will uh, we'll let you go. We'll say thank you. Thank you, thank so you Marianne. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure to be with you. You've made it so, so easy. I felt we were having a, a very <laughs> you forgot other personal conversation <laughs> here and <laughs> intimate conversation. <laughs> well, it was. Uh, and, and it will be shared with others. So thank you so much. I yep. appreciate it. Great. It's been terrific. American Narratives is brought to you by CMP, a minority and women-owned firm providing solutions across the full talent lifecycle, from recruitment and assessment to leadership coaching and career transition solutions. To learn more, visit www.careermp.com.